Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi, Amna. How are you doing today? I'm good. Hi there. How are you? Yes, yes, very well. Um, the weather's great here. I mean, I, I always mention the weather when we start off because it's a very British thing, um, because it's so... <laughs> Because it's so variable here, um, you know, it it's a nice soft landing to a conversation, um, and you can sort of break the ice, so to speak. Wonderful. How, yeah, how, the how how do you break the ice over? You know, over in the states, what's like the first kind of icebreaker conversation you have? Hmm. I think they vary widely. Um, some people will end up mentioning the weather as well but but not as strongly i mean i'm in the southern part of us right now i'm talking from north carolina and it's very uh warm people over here uh, often will ask you if you want to eat something or you want to have some iced tea since it's uh, summers um, something like that um, invite you hospitality mention words like honey or sweetie and you know very warm so how did um um a physician like yourself who qualified in Pakistan end up in North Carolina. Yeah, so that's a that's a long fun story, I would say. <laughs> I was born and raised in Pakistan and um I was there all the way up until medical school and during medical school um I met my husband who was in the United States and he was in Cleveland. So after finishing med school the following few weeks later, I got married and, and moved to the States. I had visited the States while I was in medical school as well for um, clinical rotations, uh, observerships, and, you know, that kind of stuff during medical school, but really moved um, at the end of 2012 and have been here since. I went for residency at Cleveland Clinic um, since he was in Cleveland, and Cleveland Clinic is a wonderful, amazing institute. So residency in internal medicine over there. And afterwards, my husband is a solar entrepreneur. And it's much easier to explain to people why solar makes sense when you're not in the north and there's in the Midwest and there is snow, which was which is the case in Ohio. So in North Carolina, it's nice, bright and sunny. And we moved here and I started practicing as a primary care physician. And right, right, right. So solar yeah. as in like the sun solar, not sort of singular solar right okay as a sun solar yes yeah right right so, <laughs> so so how how did you meet your husband you know how did how did that happen it's a fun story so <laughs> i would say my mother-in-law met me first as is the case with a lot of pakistani mother-in-laws but it wasn't it wasn't your classic like arranged marriage or anything like that it was at a dinner event um and she met me and she fell in love with me first and um then she mentioned. Did she say to, why? Um, well, I if I say the things that she said, I would sound very. I don't know. I would sound a bit full of myself. I don't know. 
how else to say it? She said I was very charismatic, nice, um, uh, you know, very nice to all the older adults and just like smiling. And those were some of the attributes. And when she met me, I was very young, like I was 19 at that time. And uh, I had started medical school. I started med school when I was 18 years old. So you know, she mentioned to my parents and my parents were like, she just started med school. We're just going to let her do her thing. And, uh, you know, if she's interested later on, we'll just share and we'll allow her life to unfold. So I continued to meet my in-laws and um, they're amazing humans. And they were all in Pakistan at that time during the course of my medical school. But I didn't know that my mother-in-law had actually, how should I say, asked for my hand in marriage. But um so time went on and when I was in my fourth year of medical school, um, I found out that, you know, this whole thing was happening behind the scenes and I was coming here um, to the United States for summers and that's when my husband and I met actually in Boston. He flew in from Cleveland to Boston where I was and I met him and I said, okay, he's he's a nice guy, let's do it. <laughs> so. That's how the rest is history. I can't believe I still sort of start blushing when I'm talking about it. Yep. <laughs> well, it's significant, you know, it's significant life, life events and, you know, these things happen to us. Um, and we can't, um, you know, put on that intellectual veil to, to stop ourselves from being emotional. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, did, you, did, did you always want to be a doctor? Was that something in your veins? No. So the answer is no. I was exposed to physicians. My parents were both physicians. My mother is an OB and my dad's a, um internist or, and then he did like um, chest medicine, so pulmonology, but not really critical care. Um, I saw them, but I was more interested in humanities and arts and sort of um, English literature. And and that, that in, interested me way more than purely medicine and then there was a just a part in me that said I oh I just want to do something different and I think right like the last the years one or two years preceding medical school I actually wanted to um, work with refugees wanted to do international relations and then as is the case with a lot of brown moms my mom looked at me one day and she said you're becoming a physician end of story and then I said if I'm becoming a physician I'm only going to apply to one medical school and that is the Aga Khan University, which is the best medical school in Pakistan. I know some other people, um, you know, we can objectively say that because it's received, uh, it's JCIA accredited hospital, which is per like US standards. And it's a, it's a really great place to train and very hard to get in. So that was my way of saying, ah, I'll do it if I get in. And my mom, like, she also slow, sort of laughed at that time a little bit, but then she said, no, you're, but you're becoming a doctor. Like, apply to just one more um, hospital or, you know, one more institute. And so I did. I applied. Um, I, I took my SAT exams and I applied to another hospital, which is also nice. It's a nice medical college um, close to where my parents are located. And I got in just based on my SAT scores. But I said, just remember, I just did it because you asked me to. I actually only want to go to Agathon. And then I did work hard for it. And as, as I got into the process, I did start realizing that what I had wanted to do was right alongside with um, helping individuals. And, and in medicine, there is 
so much compassion. So I could still work with really challenged populations while I was a physician. I mean, that might actually be more useful. So I so I started seeing what my mother wanted me to see. Um, so it wasn't all like I'm not going to do it, but I did. I did put my foot down in just wanting to go to that one institute, and I'm. I worked hard. I got lucky. Um, however, you want to phrase it. So I did end up in Aga Khan, and that's where I, you know, went for my medical school. I mean, did 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 you say that so that you don't get in, or was it you just wanted to do the best and be the best and you know trump your parents, so to speak? I think it was a little bit of both. There was a there was a little rebellious streak in me, which was saying, "Oh, you know how you just you're not really sure of yourself till you actually end up in that position." And I feel that I never really celebrated all my successes at all the different phases of life up until very recently, the last few months, because it's for physicians and the way our lives are carved. It's like one thing and then the other thing and then the other thing. So at that time. I in personally did not believe that I will get into such a great institute. But I knew that if I was going to become a doctor, that is the only place where I wanted to go for my education. It was that or or nothing. And and you know, was there a sort of a kind of shift in the way that, that that you looked at things or was there a cultural shock, you know, sort of going into medical school? Or was it sort of business as usual given that you've got parents as medics? Did something change in, inside of you doing medicine in medical school? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, yes, being surrounded by physicians um, your whole life, literally from the, the time you were born, and you see their struggles and you see how hard they work. So some of that just becomes second nature to you, just the expectations. Um I do think that medical school had medical school had its own challenges that it it provided me and a lot of things that I had to overcome and I really didn't appreciate that in the start. So I guess what I would say is before entering medical school I had the observer lens I could just see these people working hard but to truly and genuinely start walking in their shoes is when is the point I would say once I became a medical student I feel that my relationship with my mother got so much better because I understood her struggles so much more. And I imagine like how hard she would have had to work to get to where she, she got and, you know, go through this and, and my dad. Um, so I started becoming a more understanding daughter, I would say as well um, in this process. And, and medical school itself was, was an interesting journey because I didn't go in with um, a, a closed approach, like, okay, I'm, I'm now entering medical school, I'm going to leave and I'm going to do this, or this is the specialty that I want, um, despite having, you know, parents and seeing things. And I really was genuinely very curious about what it is. And so, which led itself to multiple other interesting events where pretty much every rotation, I thought that, oh, I'm going to end up like doing this rotation and having, um, enjoying surgery and medicine equally, which I know that a lot of people struggle with that. Um, I truly did enjoy all my surgical specialties. And I mean, I, I even had fun, so much fun in ophthalmology. I will just say that, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I had great fun uh, in ophthalmology um, in medical school. I couldn't believe it was actually um, a specialty or, you know, people actually did this work because it, it didn't feel like work. 
um, until you had to do the exams, you know, in medical school, <laughs> because it's like, wow, this is, it's like a different language and, you know, different way of um, uh, working. Um, when, when, when did, so, so, you know, you were curious in sort of all aspects of medicine, really, you were sort of open-minded to all aspects um, of the medical field. Yes, I absolutely was. Um, I, I would call home after every rotation was over. That's it. I'm doing this. And my dad and my mom were just, they would laugh and they would be joyous that, you know, I'm having a good time. I think there were, there were some specialties I knew would be challenging. I love pediatrics, but I felt that I would find it challenging later on. I love the medicine of pediatrics. And the same was with neurology. I just felt that it would be challenging for me. I couldn't see myself practicing that way. But I mean, I even loved orthopedics. I know I said I even. I mean, it's a great specialty. There was there were procedures involved, and and uh, what I loved about internal medicine was really how it encompassed everything. So, um, I I you know you get to do everything, but I didn't have a single elective rotation that I chose to do outside that was in internal medicine. I mean, I did electives in in general surgery. I did a sub eye in anesthesiology. I loved psychiatry. So when, you know, at the end, when I was deciding, okay, what am I going to do at the end? I, I felt like, okay, internal medicine. And somebody asked me, well, you don't have a single elective rotation in internal medicine. Like why? And I said, that's exactly why. Because I, I feel like I've tried everything else and had a great time in everything else. And that's where I'm going to land. Wow. Wow. And, and, and when did the American dream start? You know, what was the formal event that, that, that got that going? The American dream was always there. It was there since the second year of medical school and the, the marriage and the husband part, it just meshed into the American dream that I had. Um, I, I think I would have come to America for getting my postgraduate education regardless of that earlier event. Um, I mean, I don't think I know. Like, that's how. Because I at this point, I'm trying to leave a bridging language out of my words that, you know, show that I have doubt. Honestly, if I reflect back, every time I have set an intention and worked really hard towards something, I, I try to um, enmesh myself with positivity. And I was doing those things very early on in 9th, 10th, 11th grade. And I, felt, and I feel that all of this really propelled me to go and, and realize my dream. So to answer your question, Heather, I think I wanted to, uh, that started in, in the second year when I was reading and learning and all the things. Um, and, and our clinical exposure also started in year two of uh, medical school. The, my medical school was uh, based off of the British system as well. So it was MBBS. It was five years. And um, slowly, gradually worked towards that. And when I did my um, elective rotations here, I really enjoyed uh, medicine. And I felt that uh, for me, I really wanted a challenge for that next phase of what I want to do as a person and being in the United States would allow me to have that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so really the, the, the reason why you went to Aga Khan is to go to the States sort of thing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I would, 
<laughs> I might not agree with that statement because when I went to Aga Khan, that was to be the best doctor that I could possibly be. Right, and right. and I, I still firmly believe that's the university that you have to go to in Pakistan. I have a lot of other colleagues that have gone to phenomenal other medical schools in Pakistan, but I will strongly acknowledge and hold on to my bias because the statistics say that and also because I had such a great experience and continue to do so and and such a um, you know creative curriculum that allowed medical students to think outside the box it was not like rote learning it was problem-based learning and so many other amazing ways in which I was exposed to education so I will still hold on to that bias. Fair enough fair enough and and when you went to the states for the first time what was the biggest sort of difference um you know between uh the medical practice in pakistan and and the u.s that you realized yeah um i feel for me being in aga khan like other people might have experiences as an international medical graduate where you know the system is is very different so being in that space i felt that i didn't have like a, a huge culture shock in sorts of, in medicine because I was exposed to electronic medical records, the way rounds were done in a very similar pattern. And a lot of my attendings were actually U.S. trained. So um, I didn't feel that contrary to some other individual's experience. You know, um, what I did recognize was that large um, exposure and uh, honestly opportunity that I was blessed to have while I was practicing and what I was learning in Pakistan, where we got to see the extremes of disease um in being in a third world country you know you i there it was things like you know we talk about vaccinations and preventable issues and i still remember there was a patient with uh, adult patient with tetralogy of phalae and i was listening to all those things which i wouldn't see over here so I think from the the medicine the medicine part of me felt very fulfilled that I had seen that, and that I had gone into very poor communities and provided care, where it had a very high impact. So as medical students, we would go um, into these rural you know communities, almost like fisherman communities um, in Karachi, is where Arakan is located, and we would do this work, and um, I, I found that very fulfilling. And so when I came here. Um, I found that similar calling, I think, when I was in residency, my longitudinal clinic was um, in a part of Cleveland that was very, um, very poor. And, you know, just that part was fulfilled caring for patients that had those specific type of needs. And I felt very much at home doing, you know, practicing that kind of medicine. And and personally, for, for me, I feel that it's very fulfilling. Um, I will say it's not that the other part is not fulfilling. It's just the the physician and you really appreciates diversity, diversity of disease, diversity of presentation and, and patient population. And that's something that I always sought. Yeah. I mean, the depth of pathology, I mean, I spent some time in Iraq as well. And the depth of pathology that you see um, in our um, developing countries is immense. And, you know, the knowledge base uh, increases in these situations um and also the lack of resources as well so you know you have to be a lot more um ingenious in your ways of dealing with these things um whereas you know sort of back here in the west you know the the systems uh are mainly quite efficient so you can you can get quite good in you know a limited number of things 
Um, whereas back home, you know, you pretty much had to be an expert in everything in order to to make things work. Yeah, you have you have your stethoscope and you don't have any imaging available right now. It's you um, and, and just go. That's it. And, you know, I, also the other thing was um, when, I, when you see these pathologies that are preventable by things like vaccinations, basic needs like that, and you see somebody with polio and, and how that's affected their life, or you see a patient who has full-blown rabies, like that's the sort of things that you never forget. Um, and then when you are having people share their hesitations around immunizations and, and things like that, I, I reflect and and I say that I wish that you'd never have to see or go through some of those things that I have seen or gone through and, and you know, seen firsthand and treated. So that's just like another perspective that you get. Have, have, have you, do, do you ever go back home to Pakistan and sort of um, talk to them about your experiences or give give back to the to the system over there? That is something that I have wanted to do, but I have not done yet. Um, partly because of the pandemic, uh, my my own struggles with burnout and you know just all that that was happening and and being a mom um, in a nutshell life. But, yeah. but that's somewhere in the future for sure. Awesome, awesome, yeah, yeah. That sounds exciting. And and what were the difficulties uh, that you went through? You know, transitioning from um, from being in Pakistan, going to the um, to the US. Yeah, um, Heather, it's very interesting. People have uh, not fond memories of residency. People find residency training medical training, that part, very draining. Um, they find it stressful, excruciating, but I don't think that was my experience. And I have really reflected on it. Um, and, and I was reflecting on where my burnout originally started. But, I, I mean, why I think, was that the case? Why, why, why did you thrive in, in residency? Yeah. So, I think thrive might be a very strong word. I <laughs> I did I definitely had the stress. I felt the overwhelm. I also had postpartum depression in the last year of residency, uh, but I was able to bounce back from it. I even had health challenges that presented themselves during residency, and um, I will attribute all of that to the way my program was structured, and the and the way the Cleveland Clinic Internal Medicine Residency Program was structured. Especially, I, I, I mean, I can speak it to my experience at that time when I was a resident. It was very supportive from my chief residents to my colleagues and to my program director. Um, people were very helpful. They genuinely cared. Um, when, and as I reflect back, I, I guess I'll just share it. I was going to share it at some point anyways. Um, the day I found out that I was expecting my daughter now who's you know healthy and and well and i'm okay um i also got a call from the ophthalmologist's office that uh we are concerned you might have a brain mass and you need to go to the er and you know we're going to do an mri and all the things and that's the day my pregnancy test had come back positive and it was my first pregnancy and i was a resident and my family was in pakistan my husband was out of town, so I drove myself to the ER. 
which was close to where I was living anyways, um, at, at Cleveland Clinic. I checked in. Um, the MRI came back with, thankfully, no mass. Um, but I was told that, you know, I, there were some other findings that were concerning. And so they did an, a lumbar puncture. Long story short, I found out that I had uh, benign intracranial hypertension and um, I was having a lot of the symptoms and I was just ignoring them because I said, well, I guess this is just residency. So I had first trimester symptoms and then I was having um, pulsatile tinnitus. I was having headaches very, very frequently. Um, and when I had sought help and actually gone to get my eyes checked and, you know, I was trying to do all the rest of the things, um, I was also starting to have very brief moments of some blurry vision here and there. So um, I, when I got that diagnosis, I was very concerned. And it's also really funny that at that time, my first concern was, of course, like, I hope my baby's going to be okay. And the second concern was, I hope I graduate residency on time. So my my program director sensed this. She she knew me. She knew how how committed and dedicated I was. And her name is Dr. Abby Spencer, and she is a phenomenal woman and medicine leader. So she, you know, reached out to me and she's sort of mandated almost counseling and coaching on me. I was given resources to go and, and talk to this person. And I said, I don't have a prior mental health diagnosis. And, and I sort of like, uh, I laughed when she shared this with me. And I said, I'm going to be okay. And, um, you know, I don't think I need to go talk to somebody. Um, so I felt very, like, almost defensive that are, are you saying that something's wrong with me? And she said, Amna, you don't understand. You are going through so much right now. You found out you're expecting, you found out that you have this vision threatening problem that we can't do much about because you're pregnant we can't put you directly on medications right now um and this is all happening to you and you're seeing i mean i was having visits with uh, neuro ophthalmology and ob and my neuro ophthalmology visits with all the testing were every two to three weeks Um, my neuro ophthalmologist was amazing she was also at cleveland clinic um all of this was happening and i was a resident so she said, you need to, first of all, process this and process this as it happens so that you don't carry residue from it later on. And I, I, you know, I very begrudgingly said, yes, it was almost like it was a mandated thing. And I, I felt like, oh, my God, this is just so unnecessary. Um, but I did it. And so the, the visits for counseling and coaching, they were covered. I didn't have to pay anything from my pocket. And I was given protected time for them. I was also given protected time to go for my ophthalmology and neuro-ophthalmology visits, um, my OB visits. And um, the Cleveland Clinic insurance that I had as a resident also covered almost all my expenses. So I had time and I didn't have financial concerns to actually go ahead and get treated for all the things that were happening to me. It's a good thing you didn't rebel. It's a very good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so so as I kind of unpack and process this later on, and, and then, yes, when my daughter was born, um, the moment she was born, I instantly felt like somebody unplugged something in my brain. And there was this immense physical pressure. I almost feel like 
unclogging a drain. That's how I, I describe it. That's how I felt afterwards. And um, my neuro-ophthalmologist, she said, you know, there, there were a hand few of cases that were studied over the uh, all over the world because I didn't have any risk factors at that time for me to have benign intracranial hypertension. She said this really primarily might have happened because of pregnancy. And, the, and you know, for me, when I look back, I had an excellent program director. I had excellent chief residents, very amazing colleagues. Like my my co fellow my co residents, they were checking in on me. They didn't know what I what was happening. They knew something was up, and she you know she needs to go and get checked and stuff. But they were there for me all through the time. And then I didn't have financial worries. Like, am I going to be able to pay for this? So, even though at the end I also had about a postpartum depression. That also lasted very shorter than the second time I had postpartum depression. So I feel that my residency experience is a classic example of what happens when your program director and your program actually cares, like genuinely cares for your wellness and well-being. And I very proudly can say I was not a burnt out medical resident. And 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 how common would you think this is in in your you know in the other U.S. Resident, uh, medical res- residencies? From, I think it's about the conversations all the residents are having. I don't think it's very common. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that it's a, it's a complex problem. And there is support and then there is true wellness, like not just here's a PowerPoint, let's talk about wellness. I do, I'm very, I would say, uh, happy about the fact that more changes are being made towards the positive direction from uh, you know, the program level themselves, like the program directors, all the way up, and up to the ACGME, the American College of Graduate Medical Education, the initiatives and the recognition for resident wellness is increasing. Um, I just wish it would increase at e- an even faster rate because uh, physicians and doctors and residents, especially medical trainees, are exposed to all this every day. So, you know, all of the the initiatives can be there, but till you have somebody who is genuinely lending that caring um, hand to you, like your if your your program director genuinely cares, it shows through. Because when somebody genuinely cares, they will make sure what what you need, your need is met. So even though I was reluctant. She said, you know, this is happening. And um, then there were other instances, too, during this whole time. This was a nine-month process. Um, and thankfully, things didn't get to the point. I mean, I just feel very incredibly lucky that I didn't lose sight. I, You know, my vision, I did not have vision symptoms. The other symptoms I had to manage along the way. I mean, I, I still continue to have those palpable you know pulsatile tinnitus and 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 headaches here and there but we you know we made it work and i was fine um i don't think that that is the experience of every resident um in the u.s and i i really hope and wish that we can get to that point and and do you think that's a realistic goal you know given that um you know you know physician burnout and uh, mental health uh, problems and even suicide is a major issue, um, not just in the US but but in the UK as well. I mean, yeah. is it sort of um, is it sort of a sort of a leadership hesitancy, or is it sort of much more complicated than that? I think it is complicated, and it's not complicated. 
mm-hmm. as much as we, you know, almost create this learned helplessness. Because the moment you say something is complicated, then there and, and you start thinking, oh, man, I am going to need so much effort. I'm going to need to do so many things. So I think I'm a dreamer. I'm clearly sitting from Pakistan in the United States. I'm a dreamer. I'm here. And I continue to hope and I'm very optimistic that things will change. And, um, you know, all big things happen that the changes that are made are made from tiny shifts. So we know that there are tools that work for resident wellness. We know that there are tools that are out there. It's just the implementation. And the moment that we're, we continue to call this a complex and complicated issue, the more barriers we're trying to create between the actual issue and the solution. So for example, we know that sleeplessness and sleep deprivation um, is, a, is a big issue. And, and it's almost that a resident or a doctor is working while they're impaired. So there's going to be an alternate solution. Now, the ACGME has put in work hours for residents and other things that are in place in the United States. And um, there are initiatives such as, I remember from the time that I was a resident, that if you are post-call, if you're tired, this is like, this is a free cab to your house. Please don't drive, you know, things like that. But um, unfortunate things will continue to happen till we don't generally, you know, force the implementation almost and then get buy-in from the residents. Like, what, is, what do the residents want? And I'm also hopeful because the future generations of doctors have seen us burn out and they have seen us fizzle out of our elements. And they're very mindful. I feel that they are more mindful than our generations and even like one, two years below me, they're they're more aware of self-care issues and, and how and I feel that they want to be more conscious of how they advocate for themselves. Yeah, I mean, certainly here in the UK, the trainees are much more, uh, as you said, self-aware of, of the importance of self-care and the importance of um, not burning out. And um, whereas in my time, it was expected that the, that that you'd burn out and um there's nothing left of you at the end of the um at the end of the week so when you when when you went home um you were just a a figment of your imagination and the imagination of your family absolutely and 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 almost you would wear that like a badge of honor i mean if you're at the end of the week if you're smiling this is what my other uh, my older colleagues my senior colleagues have shared with me and they shared their stories and I feel that it's so much better already when I hear their horrifying stories when they shared those with me, but it's not. There is so much more that needs to be done. And I feel that this is an important thing that you mentioned, Heather, because there is a cyclical trauma transfer that happens in medical education when you have attendings that share their um, horrifying stories of medical training, almost with pride that they were able to sustain that and they are here and look at them and how they're they're you know doing so good and then making the the current trainee feel less than if they are complaining about feeling tired or if they're exhausted and they're actually being vulnerable with you so in that moment as a as a, an attending as a senior physician you are basically trying to transfer all the trauma that happened to you onto this resident who is now trying to not actually go through that. And so I feel that, and 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 to to the senior doctors, like it, 
I feel that they need to get help. Like this, this is not a badge of honor. You were put under stressful, traumatic training conditions. And of course, your body and your mind and you, you carry all that with you. And then you are now responsible to teach and nurture these medical trainees. And you're really going to be sharing all this with them. So you're just, it just does, it needs to stop at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, how, how, how counseling and coaching made a big difference to, um, um, to your trainee experience. And, you know, that's certainly something that, that is implementable um, in the current system. It really is. And we, um, I mean, even for, we have data, we have randomized control trials that show that coaching medical trainees works. And I and, and I'm very encouraged to see that there are a lot of programs that are now investing in medical trainees get that. So I don't think that the picture is all dark and grim. But is it happening fast enough? Not really, because the concern for physician suicide, it continues. And, uh, you know, for medical, you know, not just medical residents, residents in all training programs, the data right now just shows that suicide is the number two cause of death for trainees all over U.S. So this needs to happen faster. And there are so many other statistics that go along with that. Um, I almost feel that we need to give a suicide warning to medical students when they start um, medical education. So, and it's not that to deter people from entering, entering medical education, it is so that you are aware that this is a potential risk so that you look out for that and you seek appropriate help. I mean, I know we can't generalize, but I mean, why, why, why do you think that's the case amongst uh, medical trainees that the high, you know, having a high rate of suicide? Yeah, I think that it's, of course, again, not not wanting to generalize over everything, but there are some common traits that we can all agree um, anywhere in the world that our uh, people in medicine have, and that's the perfectionistic tendencies and all or none thinking and asking for help is, is a vulnerable situation. Anywhere in the world, if a physician or physician in training medical student is having mental health issues, they face a lot of barriers to actually go and get help. So seeking help is is such a big hurdle. And so they're left feeling almost isolated in, in that all or none black and white thinking where either it's this or it's that. And it's very sad. So creating a support system where support is there. And, and frankly, if you were to ask me, what would I want? Um, I think that from day one of medical education, when you start a medical school, you need to start seeing either a counselor, a therapist, or have a coach that helps you cheer on because that would be such a, imagine that what a supportive way would that be to go from medical school to then further training. And you've had that support system with you, almost like a longitudinal curriculum. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I was quite lucky. I had, um, I had my mother and my wife and, um, you know, close knit, um, religious community that sort of helped me to carry on and, and, uh, overcome my demons. Um, so that's what helped me get through. Um, I mean, uh, I got to know about you because you wrote a post about, about your, 
uh, postpartum depression, and it was you know quite a quite a striking post, a very courageous and 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 real post. Um, and it really struck me about um, about how difficult it was for you at the time. Thank you, Heather. Yes, um, it really was, and I had not shared. I can count on my one hand how many people actually knew about that. And that did not include my parents. So um, I think it was my husband, two close friends, and my brother. So just four people who knew that I was actually going through this um, episode. And it happened twice. And so my younger daughter is now four and my older is seven. Um, And so I would say after seven and four years, this is the year I finally broke the silence and I think that initially there was a part of me that felt that, oh, you know, another another female doctor with postpartum depression, like what is so uh, unique about your story? And and then I, you know, what why why do you need to share it? And and then I really challenged my thought, uh, partly because of all the coaching that I have received and continuing to do so. And because yes, it was just a thought and. And I wrote, and the part of the reason I have been writing is in my journey of healing. And so I felt that if I could pen it down and actually have it in print, then everyone's going to know. And then let's see what happens. And maybe this is my way that I didn't I didn't speak those words, but I wrote them. And the article came out on Mother's Day. Um, it, it had such a powerful impact. Uh, my inbox was flooded with women. Um, from all walks of life and from diverse backgrounds, um, physician and non-physician that shared um, how they had felt. And it was very striking because a lot of these messages were separate. And and I felt that there was this element of um, shame that's attached with postpartum depression um, in a variety of ways from different cultures, different backgrounds. And still, you know, so so I, I felt that their stories and them reaching out to me was so much more healing to, to me than just me putting my, the words out. And then um, I said, why that was article that? To- why, 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 why was that? Um, because I had that really, I tapped into common humanity at that time, that this was, this was the lived ex- experience of so many women, so many women from so many different professions and so many different culture and religious backgrounds, I felt that I was really bonded in sisterhood at that time. And I even had some uh, male physicians and some husbands of those wives reach out and thank me as well, because it allowed them to understand what their wives had been going you know, through at that time, um, which was, which was great to hear, you know, um, since then, I've realized that postpartum depression, especially postpartum depression in women in medicine, needs to be talked about more. We've had so many unfortunate events, and it's it's a very um, it's a sad thing because this is a joyous time to celebrate, and and women in medicine really don't have a good time to have kids. You know, it's, it's well, you can't have them during training because then you're out, and then other people will have to cover your shifts. And I had one of uh, the amazing uh, clients of mine actually share um, that she felt like, you know, people were treating her while she was out on, on maternity leave that she's on vacation. So 
here she is struggling and and the perception is that oh she's on vacation she's got time to herself so there's there's so many layers to it and then these women that we talk about myself included are they're um these amazing humans that have gone through so many challenges in life from education and otherwise and they find themselves in this position and when i was in attending i thought like okay this should be easy now because i'm in attending i'm going to have a long maternity leave i'll have time to be with my baby and it's my second time i know exactly what to do i'll be just fine and so it didn't pan out that way and um i was very disappointed in myself i felt like an utter failure and then i felt that i you know the society that i was surrounded with and i would say that's more of the south asian community however you want to say um the people that i was exposed to there's this narrative that you should be so grateful you have children people struggle with infertility this is and while this is a fact it's not it doesn't serve as a constant reminder when somebody is not in that state where where they can take these comments so i had i had added shame i would say i had added cultural shame because of all of the other things that were that i had seen and so i never told my parents when i started medications i my ob screened me they do the usual screen i didn't feel invested that i wanted to check off anything on there um so i my ob never actually diagnosed or treated it it was really my primary care physician who uh, i just reached out to myself and i i i think part of that is also my fault that at that time when it got that bad that, that's when i reached out to her and she prescribed my medication and i filled it and i just put it on my nightstand i looked at it and i said wow this is how bad it got are you going to be the person who's taking pharmacotherapy it was a very surreal moment for me so i never started and the prescription sat on my nightstand for about i would say a, a good few months um and then there was just one day where i had anger and um i just all these other confusing emotions and so i just went upstairs and and took the medication and i felt immediate relief in the next one week i know ssris are supposed to probably take a good two weeks to kick in that's what i kept counseling my patients but in 7 days like even to the point where i was experiencing things like the grass was greener the sky was blue and i think that my only regret is i should have started sooner and so but i still didn't tell anybody there were only a few people like i said four people who knew so after um my article uh, came out i sent that article to my uh parents and i was really worried it was this year and they were visiting and so i saw my dad he's looking at his cell phone and he's reading the article he's reading and reading and then and, and i'm like here it comes he's going to tell me how much of a failure he thinks i am and how much of a failure he thinks he is but it didn't he was so happy and so proud of me that i took care of the situation when it arose and i and i sought help and also that i then shared it publicly so that other people can get help and 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 how did that change you with you know being a physician and 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 a mother and a daughter it changed me because first of all i started to question all these other things i might have 
not shared with my dad or had been hesitant to share and was worried culturally that he's not going to accept them. So that's my bias against my parents. And I need to question that and actually connect and reach out. So that was the first thing. And I think it it was very validating. And I know that I have removed and worked very hard to remove this external validation that I seek from other people as I have gone through my journey, which is really hard to do. And I'm still on that journey, but it felt very healing and validating for for me to know that my parents were actually proud of the fact that I had shared. Um, I think it really shaped the fact that I want to now be more vocal, be more verbal about um, sharing on postpartum depression and, and seeing whoever I can help with that. I mean, honestly, my goal was to help one other woman. I feel that a lot of other people have reached out to me. And so I feel very fulfilled in that way. And and your relationship with your with your uh, patients has has that changed or is it pretty much the same? <laughs> As a geriatrician, um, I I'm not having these days to uh, do a lot of conversations surrounding that, but I I feel that there is that compassion that's always there, and so with any experience that I have had, um, a personal regarding this issue, which has been so far the only active mental health issue that I've dealt with. The other things were imposter syndrome and burnout and all these other things. I feel that a part of me just is very, very close to the patient experience. And I think that this was really instilled in me when I got my own diagnosis um, of benign intracranial hypertension at that time. Just uh, being the patient at that time it can feel very disempowering. And then when my physician used to make me feel empowered and that I can, I have agency and things can get better, you know, I'm still going to carry that with me forever. Wow, yeah. I mean, you know, so, certainly these stories are very powerful uh, when they come from positions of so-called authority and, and um, uh, specialty. Um what kind of changes do you want to see sort of going forward? I mean, you know, you've experienced the sort of um, uh, feedback from from other individuals who've who've um, experienced what what you've experienced. What what changes would you like to see being done? I think specifically for postpartum depression, every institute needs to review their um, parental leave policy and see how much support can be assigned. And, you know, when we say, well, realistically, this is not possible. And, you know, in an ideal world, yes, people will have like long parental leaves and then will come back whenever they want to. I would really question that thought that some of the leaders are having, because if that amazing physician employee that you have will struggle in their postpartum time are not supported enough. They're at high risk of getting burnt out. They're at high risk of moral injury and all these other entities that will ensue. They will likely leave your institute. And at the end of the day, the cost to replace that amazing physician is going to be two to three times. You also need to think about your patient experience. Your patients will suffer, um, especially in, in, in fields like that in fields that have continuity of care, such as primary care. Um, if a primary care physician leaves, the rest of the panel suffers. 
because it takes a long time to develop those relationships with your with your patients. So one would be to really assess the uh, the parental leave and the support that is provided to physicians when they come back from maternity leave or paternity leave. Is there support for physicians to have an appropriate space for pumping? All the things, you know, these are these are overlooked, sadly, in a lot of places. Physicians are actually pumping and seeing patients at the same time, you know. So, so there is support that needs to be created surrounding that. And then there is the other support that needs to exist, such as ta- counseling, coaching, therapy, depending on where you're at, um, to have access to that, those services should be covered by the institute. If there, this is an institute-employed physician, the, the corporation, the organization should cover the, those costs. And again, this in the, in the bigger picture will have such amazing ripple effects. And this is not imaginary. There's all the data that there is there to prove it. I mean, I mean, it's absolutely essential, you know, given that the majority of physicians now are female and, you know, um, we need to nurture that that sort of aspect of um, um, of life for sure. Um, is, is, is there anything you want to sort of finish on? I mean, um, I mean, something that's sort of burning inside that you want to get off your chest. While, while you can. <laughs> uh, wow, Heather, this has been a, an amazing conversation. I think I did uh, end up sharing a lot. Um, I, I just want, if there is anyone listening to this episode and struggling at this time, whether they whether that be in their role as a physician, whether that be in whatever role or journey they are in medicine, um, from medical school to trainee, to after training, just reach out. Honestly, the first thing is to reach out. And and even though it's exhausting at that time, and sometimes you feel like nothing is going to change, but that first step can actually set a lot in motion. And when I say reach out, I mean to somebody professional, whether it be your primary care physician, your, your GP, your other, you know, a counselor, a coach, a therapist, anybody, just take that first step. Um, and, and if you feel that that's a lot and you haven't shared with a single soul that you know, um, your family members, your friends, just say something to anybody. Please don't suffer in silence. Asking for help is useful. And what you say matters. Please just reach out. Right, that's awesome. Um, I, I I like to end on this question. Um, what are the three things you would tell the um eighteen year old Amno is about to go to the medical school, um, of her choosing, of course. Um, <laughs> given you know, um, you've experienced what you've experienced over the last few years. What would your three top tips be to her uh, as she's about oh. to start medical school? Wow. This is a powerful question. Um, I would say trust in yourself. Be kind to yourself. Self-compassion is important. And honestly, just be you. Because I think that my innate qualities have served me well so far. 
of these three things, I would really highlight self-compassion because I've been very hard on myself. Awesome. That's been great. Uh, how how can people get hold of you? What's what's the best way? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn with my first and last name, Amna Shabir, MD. Um, you can also go to my website, which is D-R-A-M-N-A-S-H-A-B-B-I-R.com. So dramnashabir.com. Great. Thank you, Amna. It's been great. Thank you.